0: If you would, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, and I'd like for us to begin reading with verse 24 and read on down through verse 34, Luke 22, verses 24 through 34. And as you're turning there, let me tell you what a joy it is to be back here at Living Hope Baptist Church, have such admiration and affection for this church, for your pastors, for your leaders, and for many who are here. And so it's it's a privilege for me to be here with you this morning. Luke twenty two twenty four through 34 and since these words are breathed out by the Holy Spirit and come with the authority of our Lord Jesus Himself, would you please stand with me out of reverence for the voice of our King? The Holy Spirit says through Luke, A dispute also arose among them, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trial, And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers." Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you even know me. Let's pray. Holy Father, we pray as we gather here under your word that you would silence any spirit in this place that would exalt itself above or beside the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Father, would you strip away from our minds, from our hearts, from our affections, from our consciences, anything that is not patterned after Jesus Christ, and would you conform us into his image that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And we ask this in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. Growing up, In coastal Mississippi, there were all sorts of unspoken rules that I just kind of picked up on. Nobody had to really spell them out. You just kind of absorbed them from the people uh, around you. you. You didn't call anyone over 10 years older than you were by his or her first name. You have all the dogs you wanted, but you didn't keep the dog in the house, and you sure didn't have a cat. You didn't smoke in public if you were a woman, and you didn't chew tobacco if you were a man in church. And one of the rules that seemed to, seemed to just be in the air around me among people in my community was that you didn't get a tattoo. Now, tattoos are routine now. We see tattoos all over the place almost anywhere in, in any sort of person. But at the time... The reason that people were so suspicious of tattoos, it wasn't because of any biblical prohibition. It was just a sort of cultural thing where the people were saying, those who have tattoos are not our kind of people. They were they were people that they kind of saw with suspicion. They were leftover hippies, or maybe they were hell's angels, or they were people who were dangerous, or people who had backstories, and people who had really hard lives. And that's one of the reasons why I suppose that when I was six or seven years old, I was so surprised to see sitting in the pew in front of me a man who had a tattoo all the way down the length of his arm of a naked woman. And the thing that was surprising to me about this is not just that he was there, and it's not just that I was seeing that, It was that my grandmother was sitting right next to me, and she didn't seem to be alarmed at all. And I was shocked. I couldn't believe. Why wouldn't you wear a long sleeve shirt, I was thinking to myself. And my grandmother seemed to notice this, and she leaned over and she whispered to me. It was almost a word of rebuke. She said his wife has been trying to get him to church for a long time. And she said, he's not trying to be rude. He just doesn't know Jesus yet. It seems to me that she knew that there was a power in that church, in the preaching of those old verses, and the singing of those old hymns, that could overcome whatever it was that was the backstory behind that inked-up arm. But what she had, and it impressed me at the time, was a kind of confident tranquility. She did not see this man as her enemy. She saw this man as a mission field, and she wasn't afraid of him at all. That's the kind of tranquility that we see here in this text that we just read some moments ago. Jesus is talking to his disciples after they've gathered, just as we gathered some moments ago, to take the bread and the cup, and they on the horizon. Jesus says to His disciples, one of you is going to betray Me. One of you will turn Me over to the authorities. He says right after this passage that we just read, that there are going to be different days waiting for them. Before, they could go into any houses that they wanted, and there were always people there willing to take them in with hospitality. Those days are over. Now, people are going to be searching them out and seeking to turn them over to the authorities. There's fear all around them. The culture is changing. And you and I are here today in 2015 with a changing culture around us. For a long time, over the last 100 years, people needed to be at least affiliated by name with the church. People felt as though in order to be a good citizen, they needed to be people who believed in God at least verbally. There were people all over the Bible belt in this country who needed to be baptized in order to be seen as good neighbors. Those days are over. We now see the culture around us in an American context filled with people who no longer have to pretend to believe in the Gospel. And we see Changes that are happening over things that once were seen as the most basic values that everyone in the country could hold to. What a marriage is, what a family is, what a good society is. I would suggest to you that if we are people who are shaped and formed by the gospel, whatever changes await in American culture should not be greeted by us, with hand-wringing, or with fist-clenching. We should not respond with fear or with outrage. We need to see exactly what Jesus is showing to us in this passage, the antidote to fear, which is the gospel of the kingdom. Whatever it is that lies in the future, of the culture, or of your personal lives, our response is not one, of fear. Notice, first of all, in this passage, we don't fear because the kingdom reframes our future. It, it shows us here one of the most pathetic arguments that happens in all of Scripture. You have the disciples here right after Jesus is talking about His crucifixion, His death, who are in an argument with one another about who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Now, it seems when we look at this that it's about the disciples having too much confidence. But that's not really what's happening here. Jesus shows us that their problem is actually that they had too little confidence. You see, Jesus had already said, one of you will betray me. One of you will turn me over. And the disciples start asking themselves, who is this? Who is the one who's going to betray you? Lord, is it it I? Am I the one who's going to betray you? And in the middle of all of this uncertainty comes the argument as to who is going to fit where in the kingdom of God. The sort of petty disagreements and arguments that we often have among ourselves. And Jesus here comes in and demonstrates to them that they are not confident enough. He says to them, you know what? You are accustomed to patterning yourselves after the culture. You're acting just like the Gentiles around you. The people who want to lord over one another. The people who want to prize who's in charge and who's more important than whom. He says, but if you'll notice, here at the table, the one serving you the bread and the one pouring for you the wine. That's me, he said. Who is normally the one who waits at the table? It's the least important person in the room. He says, but here I am, the king of the universe, and I am the one serving you and waiting upon you. He is showing them what the kingdom of God is like And Jesus says he is able to serve because he has nothing to prove. Jesus does not need a vote of people acknowledging that he is the most important person in the room. He does not need to have people who are boasting and bragging on his power and authority. He has the confidence of his Father's mission and of his Father's inheritance and of his father's kingdom, and Jesus says to them, "You are the ones who have stayed with me in my trials. He acknowledges that he has trials. And he says, "Just as my father has given to me a kingdom, you will rule and reign with me, you will judge over twelve tribes of Israel." Jesus gives them a picture of their future in order to show them that they are motivated by fear and they don't even know it. And there are perhaps many of you in this room who are motivated by fear and you don't even know it. Because if you see your life as the next 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 100 years, then you are going to live your life as one who is fearful of limits. And that's especially true if you see the future for you as just being a sort of afterlife that is a retirement after your life is over. That's not the picture of the kingdom of God that Jesus gives us. He says, your life doesn't end at death. Your life begins at death. And everything that is happening in your life right now, the trials that Jesus speaks of, are preparing you and getting you ready for the life that God has for you in His kingdom as the one who is a joint heir ruling and reigning with Christ. He says, so if that is the case, then why would you be worried, and why would you be fighting, and why would you be anxious about whether or not everything is going your way in the here and now? You know, if you have a a kindergarten kid who wants to be president of his kindergarten class, that's fine. And if he's elected president of his kindergarten class and he's really happy, it's good to be excited with him. If he doesn't get elected and he's really disappointed and he comes home and cries, that's no big deal either. You comfort him through that. But if at 45 years old, he is still introducing himself, hey, I'm Todd Blankenship, president Emeritus." of the learn and play kindergarten class of whatever, then he's kind of a loser. And if at forty five years old he's still bitter and saying, you know, that election was rigged, I should have been elected president and I was I was I was I was wrongly robbed of it, he's kind of a loser. Who cares? His life should have moved on by then. Jesus says if you have the kingdom of God waiting for you, if you are being prepared to be a king or a queen of the universe ruling with Jesus, then why are we so obsessed with making sure that this little short time of internship and preparation for that gives us, all of the attention and all of the power that we believe that we deserve. And frankly, how many, just like these disciples, of the fights that we have among ourselves are really about that? You're not paying attention to me. I'm not getting what it is that I think I deserve. Jesus says, you're acting like Gentiles. You're acting like Romans. And the reason you do that is because you think, I've only got so long to matter. Some of the arguments that we have within the church are really about that. I've only got so long to sing the songs I want to sing. I've only got so long to be able to have the things that I want to happen, happen. But your life is not this little period of time. You have trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions trillions of years ahead of you. And if that's the case, that ought to free you to serve. Free you to count others as more important than yourself. Free you from fear. The same thing is true with the culture around us. There are some who will say, people who believe what the Bible teaches are on the wrong side of history. And that can lead to a great deal of anxiety on the part of Christians. That shouldn't lead to anxiety when people say that. We've been on the wrong side of history since A.D. 33. The right side of history was the Roman Empire. The wrong side of history was being crucified by that Roman Empire outside the gates of Jerusalem. There is nothing more on the wrong side of the eternal city of Rome than a cross. And yet, the Roman Empire is dead, and Jesus Christ is feeling fine. If we understand and we know who we are and what is waiting for us, then we don't have fearfulness when the culture around us doesn't recognize what it is that Jesus has given to us. We instead recognize and know that we are an embassy of the kingdom of God. We are pointing out something that is as we serve one another, as we love one another, as we outdo one another, as the Scripture puts it, in showing honor to one another, because we're in a boot camp right now for our next trillion years. He says that's why power within the people of God is not about who is most important. It is not about who gets what it is that he or she wants. It's the reason why we as the people of God care about that child with Down syndrome. Because his identity is not bound up in how useful he seems to the culture around him. His identity is bound up by the fact that He is created in the image of God and He is a future ruler of the universe with Jesus Christ. The outside world can't see that or recognize that, but the people of God can. And as we live that way and as we love that way, we are freed from fear. But notice also that the Scripture shows us we don't fear because the Gospel reframes our mission. After Jesus has rebuked and had this conversation with His disciples, He has this sidebar conversation with Simon Peter. And He says to him, Simon Peter, there is a spiritual war going on. Satan has asked for you. And Peter here is someone who seems to have a lot of confidence. He says, Lord, I'm I'm ready to fight. He assumes that he has all of the resources that he needs to go against whatever it is that he fears. And Jesus says, no, 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 Peter. You don't understand. Satan has asked for you. And Satan has not asked to kill him. Satan has asked to keep him alive. Sifting Peter like wheat is not what Peter fears It's what Peter wants. Peter does not want to be crucified. Peter does not want to be arrested. That is exactly what Satan is asking for him. Keep him away from the cross. Some of you are at a point where you're just ready to give up. You're fearful of what it is that your future holds. You're fearful of what it is that you're up against. The word of encouragement that Jesus gives is not, you've got what it takes. The word of encouragement that Jesus gives is, I have prayed for you. Now think of the grace and the mercy of that. Jesus knows what Peter's greatest temptation is. Jesus knows what is in Peter's mind and heart better than Peter himself knows. And Jesus does not reject him. Jesus does not push him to the side. Jesus does not turn back from him in revulsion. Jesus says, I know and I am praying for you. Jesus knows exactly exactly what is going on in your mind and in your heart and in your conscience. And if you belong to Him, Jesus is saying, I have prayed for you. I am standing here with you. Jesus is not afraid of Peter because He isn't afraid of any of the guards that that, that Peter would try to fight. Jesus knows who He is Jesus knows what His future is. And Jesus knows you. Jesus knows when you're wavering. Jesus knows when when your faith is just threadbare and almost ready to give up. And Jesus is praying for you right now. And He says more than that. He says, Peter, when you have turned, when you come back, when you repent, strengthen the brothers. This is not about Him. This is not just about Peter. This is about strengthening the rest of the body of Christ. You know, when we think about all the changes that are going on in our culture, we need to be reminded that the gift that we have for the world is not our power. It's not our influence. It's not our morality or our behavior. The gift that we have for the world is our gospel. Good news of sinners made right with God. And the first step to that is acknowledging and recognizing that we are sinners. There are some people who when they look at the world around them, they're panicked because they're looking backward to some better day. They want to get back to a time when things were simpler or when the culture was better. Better behavior does not lead to reconciliation with God. If we understand what sin is, and if we understand how sin works, then we understand and know that Mayberry without Christ leads to hell, just like Gomorrah, without Christ, leads to hell. The answer is instead having the confidence in the gospel that we know that by speaking the gospel and living the gospel, we will see people turn, and not only turn in a way that saves their own lives and souls, but in a way that builds up the body of Christ. We have a sexual revolution going on in the culture right now that says that sexual pleasure and sexual identity and sexual freedom will lead to happiness. It won't. And that means we're going to have a lot of refugees from the sexual revolution in the years to come. Of people who bought into promises that cannot be kept. And the question is, who will be able to receive those refugees? The people who've given up what the Scripture teaches will not be able to minister to them. And the people who simply scream and yell at them will not be able to minister to them. The people who will be able to minister to them are the people who have held on to the Gospel and simultaneously love the lost. Jesus says, when you turn, strengthen your brothers. When my grandmother said, he doesn't know Jesus yet. The reason that was so impressive to me as a child is that word, yet. She had confidence enough in the gospel that she knew that the gospel does not come to people who seem as though they are ready, to the go- ready for the gospel. The gospel comes for those who are broken and wounded sinners. Saul of Tarsus never went to vacation Bible school. And yet God used him to to turn Him around and then to take the Gospel out to the nations and ultimately to all of us. If we remember and we know who we were, we were people who were running from the presence of God. We were people who were hiding behind various different things. Some of us hiding behind sexual pleasure. Some of us hiding behind... Drunkenness or drug abuse, some of us hiding behind pride and covetousness, some of us hiding behind atheism or agnosticism, some of us hiding behind some sort of cult membership, some of us hiding behind a self righteous form of Christianity. All of us hiding behind something, but it doesn't take one bit more gospel to save the people who right now hate the Gospel and Christianity than it took to save us. And if we have confidence in that, then we're going to bear witness, the whole witness, and we'll do it with kindness to those on the outside, knowing that the people who hate us right now might not only be our future brothers and sisters in Christ, they may be the ones that God uses to bring the gospel to our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. That's the way that the kingdom of God works. And if that's what it means, then it means that our churches need more tattoos. And by that, I don't mean more Hebrew words tattooed on us or more Bible verses tattooed on us. I mean, we need people in our churches who have tattoos that they're ashamed of. Skulls with snakes coming out of the eyes or satanic pentagrams or lists of people murdered. The sort of tattoos that demonstrate a life that was lost somewhere in the past. The the sort of tattoos that would cause someone to feel a little awkward, saying, how can I get rid of this? When in reality, all of us know that experience. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If we are the heirs of the kingdom, if we are the ambassadors of reconciliation, then we are not going to be afraid of lost people. Because our mission is not a mission to be seen as right. Our mission is not a mission to be powerful or influential. Our mission is to speak the words of Christ that call out to heart. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If we carry that gospel, if we seek that kingdom, if we become that community, then we'll love God, but we won't fear our mission. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for those in this room who are fearful Some of them, Lord, are fearful of You. They have consciences that speak against them. Father, if there are those in the room like that, would You point them to the good news that Jesus Christ took on sin and paid for it, and that He's now alive and standing before You? Father, there are others in this room who are fearful of their own faith or lack of it. They're ready to they're ready to give up. They've lost confidence. Father, would you point them to the power of a praying Christ? And there are others in this room, Father, who have too much confidence. They think that somehow they can get by on their own power, on their own willpower, on their own doing, and their own performing. Father, would You show them that they don't have it in their flesh to accomplish this. And prop them to rest in Christ. And Father, would You point us today, would You give us images of those people in their lives, some of them related to us, some of them in our workplaces, some of them in our schools, some of them in the neighborhoods around us, of those who are our mission field, would You give us broken hearts for them and not fear? We ask this in Jesus' name.